You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's readings of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 9th. I'm Sarah Fay from Drake University, and here's our first story. Library Bill Seeks to Bypass Voters There's a photo of the Council Bluffs Public Library, which is located at 400 Willow Avenue. It's open Mondays through Thursdays from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., Fridays and Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Sundays from 1 to 5. Speakers decree politicians seeking more sway by Aaron Murphy. A proposal to give city councils more authority over public libraries would give partisan political decision-making into library operations, including book selection. Dozens of public library officials and supporters warned state lawmakers Thursday at the Iowa Capitol. The legislator who managed the bill during Thursday's hearing said that his goal is not to address the selection of books, but instead to provide elected local officials with more authority over the spending of taxpayer dollars. Dozens of public library officials and supporters from across the state crammed into the small room in the Iowa Capitol to express their staunch oppositions to the proposed legislation, which would eliminate the requirement that a city's voters approve any proposal to alter the composition, manner, or of selection or the change of a library board or its replacement. Instead, a city council would be able to hire a library director, use library funds for library projects and initiatives by passing an ordinance without voter approval. Librarians, library board members, and public library supporters warned lawmakers against the bill's potential impact of placing partisan political decision-makers in charge of public libraries. Our town has fewer than 500 people, so I I come from a very rural area. This bill is a train wreck. It opens up all sorts of possibilities for very disastrous consequences if you get an active an activist city council that starts seesawing on what they believe in a library to be or not to be, said Wade Dooley, who described himself as a sixth-generation farmer in Marshall County and the chair of the Abilene Ab- Library Board of Trustees. Our city council has barely any training to be a city council. Now you also want them to run a library? I'm sorry, but that's not a good idea. This bill should be squashed. None of the 19 people who spoke during the public comment period on, of Thursday's hearing spoke in favor of the bill, and no lobbyist organization is registered in support of the bill, according to the state lobbying records. Representative Carter Nordman, a Republican from Panora, said that he is not at all concerned about library book selection. He said some city leaders have contacted him with concerns over, public, over library board spending and council's inability to address that. I have a stack of stories from city administrators and city councils that have nothing to do with the content. Matter of fact, all of them say that we don't care about the content in the library. The library boards can take care of that, Norman told reporters after the hearing. Library boards essentially get full autonomy. None of them are elected and they're spending taxpayer dollars. Now, if, uh, now if a city wants to continue to allow them to do it and they're, they think they're doing a great job, then sure, Norman said. But we have a lot of instances around the state where the city council feels very different on the way the library board is going. And ultimately, the library board wasn't elected. The city council was. And so the buck stops with them when it comes to taxpayer dollars. They should have that authority. Currently, a library board is appointed after approval of city council and it set library policies. Like any city function, a public library receives a yearly appropriation under a city budget. Norman said he would be willing to consider an amendment that would give city councils more authority over library boards but carve out the content section. I'm open to that conversation for sure, and that's what the process is all about. We have a conversation in committee next week, and if that's something that the committee and 
my House Republican caucus wants to do, we'll definitely look at that for sure, Nordman said. But for me, it's really not about the content. And for most of the city administrators and city council members that I've heard from, it's not about the content. It's about the personnel issues and the taxpayer dollars being spent. The proposal legislation comes months after voters in Pella defeated a similar proposal at the local level. The referendum on the November 2023 ballot asked voters whether to give its council the authority to change the library policies. That referendum came after the library rejected requests to remove the book Gender Queer, a graphic novel that contains sexual images in describing the author's realization of identifying as neither male nor female. Pella voters rejected proposals with a 51% of voters opposed. Three people who said they are Pella residents spoke in opposition of the bill. There was a very thorough and extensive and long legation of this issue, public discussion of this issue, said Speaker Dave Timmer. At the end of that long discussion, with lots of public participation, we decided to not adopt a resolution that would have done what this bill does. A lot of us feel that the goalposts are being moved now, so I urge you to oppose this bill. Nordman and fellow Republican Representative Jane Bloomingdale of Northwood signed off on advancing the bill, making the House Study Bill 678 eligible for consideration by the Full House Local Government Committee. Representative Jamie Jerome Amos Jr., a Democrat from Waterloo, declined to sign off. Now that was quite the story on libraries. We're going to move on to a story about State Rep's Advanced Behavioral Health Reorganization Proposal by Caleb McLaughlin. A plan from Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds to overhaul Iowa mental health and substance use treatment systems cleared its first legislative hurdle on Thursday. The bill calls for dissolving Iowa's existing networks that provide mental health and substance use treatment services. In their place, it would stand up a network of regional behavioral health providers that provide the combined health care services. The bill, House Study Bill 653, passed out of House subcommittee with support from the two Republican members. Democratic Representative Beth Whistle Cronshell of Ames did not vote to advance it, saying she had questions about how the bill would be implemented. Representative Joel Fry R. Oskella said lawmakers have made large strides in addressing Iowa's mental health care, and he hopes the bill will continue to improve those services. We are excited to work with the governor on how we might move this bill for forward and continue to enhance services, he said. Don't want to leave out any of those services we, that we currently have out. We'll take advisement and continue to be open and for discussion as we move this bill forward. So what does this bill do? Iowa has 13 mental health and disability service regions that provide care for people with mental health issues and intellectual disabilities. There are 19 integrated provider networks that deal with substance use disorder and gambling addiction. The bill would dissolve those regions and networks and instead create a behavioral health service system consisting of seven behavioral health districts under the Department of Health and Human Services. Those districts would be responsible for prevention, education, treatment, recovery, and crisis services related to mental health and substance use disorders. Disability services provided by the state's Mental Health and Disability Service Network would be shifted to the state's Aging and Disability Services. The seven regions would be administered by an organization selected by the state through a bidding process. The organization could be the existing agencies that oversee mental health regions or another public or private agency in the district. Under the bill, the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services would receive all fundable federal block grants for mental health and substance use services, and then would direct it to the agencies in the seven regions. 
The region administrators would develop and follow behavioral health plans to provide those services. The bill would remove from the law the core services that Iowa's regional mental health providers need to offer. Instead, the required services would be set out in contracts between the department and the regional agency. The transition between systems would take place over a year, and would the new system would be fully operational in July of 2025. Officials, current system is failing Iowa's. Officials with the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services and the governor's office told lawmakers on Thursday that Iowa's current system for mental health and substance use disorder treatments is splintered, ineffective, and leads to inconsistent services across the state. Iowa HHS Director Kelly Garcia said that the current system is complicated and difficult to navigate for Iowans. She said the new proposal would offer the same services, but in a more effective and accessible way. What we see today is a system that is fractured, Garcia said. It is fractured. It is not serving islands. And so we are taking a really significant step forward to really cure that issue. Molly Severin, the legislative liaison for Reynolds' office, millions in unspent funds for Iowa's mental health regions is evidence the system is inefficient. The system is broken, she said. The regions have done the best they can with the fractured system, but now it's time to fix it. Health providers weigh in. Flora Schmidt, the, ex- the executive director of the Iowa Behavioral Health Care Association, spoke up on behalf of several organizations and providers that make up Iowa's substance use networks and a number of mental health and behavioral health clinics. She told lawmakers that providers were cautiously optimistic about the change, but had major concerns about the year-long transition period and how services would transfer over between the old and the new systems. Other healthcare provider groups said they were concerned that the removal of the core services from the law could lead to a weakening of those services. Our members, they've got a lot of angst right now, Schmidt said. They just don't know what they're going to mean to their workforce, their funding, and ultimately their ability to maintain a continuality of their services over the next 18 months and then into that first couple of years into the process. And there is a graphic associated with this story. It says behavioral health districts, and it's a map of Iowa laying out those seven districts. The caption says, a draft of the seven proposed behavioral health districts under Governor Kim Reynolds' reorganization bill. And that's going to be the end of this story, and we're going to move right on into that next one. This next story we're going to be reading is a little bit of national news. Justices skeptical of case. Election 2024. Court seems poised to reject efforts to keep Trump off the ballot by Mark Sherman from the AP Press. Washington, the Supreme Court seems poised to reject attempts to kick former President Donald Trump off the 2024 ballot. A definite ruling for Trump, the leading Republican candidate for president, would largely end efforts in Colorado, Maine, and elsewhere to prevent his name from appearing on the ballot. During arguments Thursday, conservative and liberal justices alike questioned whether Trump can be disqualified from being president again because of his efforts to undo his loss of the 2020 election to Democrat Joe Biden, ending with the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Their main concern was whether Congress must act before states can invoke a constitutional provision that was adopted after the Civil War to prevent former officeholders who engaged in in insurrection from holding office again. There were also questions about whether the president is covered by the provision. Without such congressional legislation, Justice Elena Kagan was several was among several judges who wanted to know why a single state should decide who gets to be the president of the United States. The outcome could reflect a broad consensus of the court, and it could come quickly. 
Eight of the nine judges suggested they were open to at least some of the arguments made by Jonathan Mitchell, Trump's lawyer at the Supreme Court. Only Justice Sonia Sotomayor sounded like she might vote to uphold the Colorado Supreme Court ruling that found Trump engaged in insurrection and is ineligible to be president. The state court ruled that Trump should not be on the ballot for the state's Republican primary on March 5th. In another sign of trouble for the Colorado voters who sued to remove Trump from the ballot, the justices spent almost no time talking about whether Trump actually engaged in insurrection following the 2020 election. Lawyer Jason Marie, representing the voters, pressed to the point that Trump incited the Capitol attack to prevent the peaceful handover of power for the first time in history. Mitchell argued that the Capitol riot was not an insurrection, and even if it was, Trump did not participate. Trump, speaking to reporters after the proceedings, called the Supreme Court argument a beautiful thing to watch in many respects, even as he complained about the case being brought in the first place. The court indicated it will try to act quickly, shortening the period in which it receives written briefing and holds arguments. And that is the end of that story, and I'll be moving on to the next one shortly. This next article is going to be called Israeli Airstrikes Kills 13 in Rafah. There's a photo um, and the caption, it's two guys looking up at destruction, and the caption says, Palestinians look at the destruction Thursday after an Israeli strike in Rafah, southern Gaza Strip. This story is written by three authors, and I'm so sorry for how I'm going to pronounce these. Najim Joban, Wafa Sharafa, and Kareem Shayab from the Associate Press. Rafa, Gaza Strip. Israeli airstrikes killed over a dozen people overnight and into Thursday in Rafa and the Gaza Strip, hours after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected Hamas's ceasefire terms and vowed to expand the offensive into southern Gaza town. U.S. President Joe Biden called Israeli's military response in Gaza over the top, and he said he continues to work tirelessly to press Israel and Hamas to agreeing on an extended pause in fighting. I am of the view, as you know, that the conduct of the response in the Gaza Strip has been over the top, he told reporters in an exchange Thursday evening. More than half of the Strip's population has fled to Rafah, on the mostly sealed border with Egypt, which is also the main entry point for the humanitarian aid. Egypt warned that any ground operation there or mass displacement across the border would undermine its four-decade-old peace treaty with Israel. The overnight strikes killed at least 13 people, including two women and five children, according to the Kuwadi Hospital, which received the bodies. Israel's four-month offensive among the most destructive in recent history has killed more than 27,000 Palestinians, driven most people from their homes, and pushed a quarter of the population towards starvation. Netanyahu said that the offensive will continue and expand until total victory over Hamas militants. Hamas is still holding more than 130 hostages, but about 30 of them are believed to be dead. The United States, Qatar, and Egypt are trying to broker another ceasefire agreement to ensure the release of the remaining hostages. But Hamas demanded an end to the war, a full Israeli withdrawal from Gaza, and the release of hundreds of Palestinian prisoners, including high-profile militants. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken left the Middle East on Thursday with public divisions between the United States and Israel at perhaps their worst level since Israel's war in Gaza began. Wrapping up a four-nation trip, his fifth to the Middle East since the conflict erupted, Blinken returned to Washington after getting a virtual slap in the face from Netanyahu, who appeared to be outright reject Hamas's response to the ceasefire proposal. 
Continuing on, there are a couple short little political pieces I'm going to read. Senate begins work on help for Ukraine, Israel. Republicans rejected deal that included tightening the border by the Associated Press. Washington, the Senate on Thursday voted to begin working on a package of wartime funding for Ukraine, Israel, and other U.S. allies, but doubts remained about support from Republicans who earlier rejected a carefully negotiated compromise that also included border enforcement policies. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called to the latest vote a good first step and pledged that the Senate would keep working on this bill until the job is done. The vote to begin work on the new package cleared 67 to 32, with 17 Republicans along with Democrats voting to move forward. Senator Bernie Sanders, who opposes much of the aid for Israel, voted against it. Schumer has tried to salvage $60 billion in aid for Ukraine, as well as about $35 billion for Israel. Other allies and national security priorities after the collapse this week of bipartisan agreement to tie border enforcement policies to the package. If the measure passes Senate, it is expected to be even more difficult to win the approval in the Republican-controlled House. Some Republicans in the Senate have also vowed to do everything they can to delay final action. Moving on to this next political piece, it's titled, Report, Biden Willfully Retained Classified Docs. Justice Department concludes no criminal charges are warranted, written by the Associated Press. Washington, President Joe Biden willfully retained and disclosed highly classified materials when he was a private citizen, including documents about military and foreign policy in Afghanistan and other sensitive national security matters, according to the Justice Department report that nonetheless says no criminal charges are warranted for him or anyone else. Thursday's report from Special Counsel Robert Herr, a former U.S. attorney for Maryland during the Trump administration, is harshly critical of Biden's handing, handling of sensitive government materials, but also details reasons why he shouldn't be charged. The findings will likely blunt his ability to forcefully condemn Donald Trump, Biden's likely opponent in November, November's presidential election, over a criminal indictment charging the former president with illegally hoarding classified records at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. Her's report says evidence suggests that many of the documents recovered at the Penn Biden Center in parts of Biden's Delaware home and his Senate papers at the University of Delaware were retained by mistake. Next, we're going to move on to another article. This next article is titled Laos's Stort Heritage Site Threatened by David Rising from the Associated Press. Luang Prabang, Laos. Landlocked Laos doesn't have the famous beaches of its neighbors to attract tourists but instead relies on the pristine beauty of its, mon of its mountains and rivers and historical sites to bring in visitors. The crown jewel is in the Luang Prabang, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, where legend has it that Buddha once rested during his travels. It brings all of the elements together, with its mix of historic Laotian and French colonial architecture on the peninsula at the confluence of Mekong and Nam Ka rivers. But a multi-billion dollar dam project underway 15 miles upstream has prompted concerns that could result in the city losing its UNESCO status, and the broader question about what the government's ambition plans to build multiple dams across the Mekong will do to the river, the lifeblood of Southeast Asia. When the Luang Prabang Dam is complete, and it's already well under construction, the river is going to trickle into the 
into a dead body of water, said Brian Ayler, director of the Washington-based Stimson Center Southeast Asia Program and its Energy, Water, and Sustainability Program. The people going to Luang Prabang as tourists to see the mighty Mekong and to see the Lao people interact with the river, all of these interactions are going to be gone. All the fishing, meaningful local boating, and commerce done by locals on relatively small boats will end. The dam is also being built near an active fault line, and though studies of the design conclude it could withstand an earthquake, local residents are worried. For Phone, a 38-year-old tour boat operator and lifelong Luang Prabang resident, memories of the 2018 collapse of another dam in Laos that killed dozens and displaced thousands, blamed on shoddy constructions, are still fresh. Many people died, he said. Luang Prabang is not yet on UNESCO's list of the endangered world heritage sites, but the Paris-based agency has outlined a series of concerns, including the protection of historic buildings and the effect the dam will project on projected wetlands and the city's riverbanks, and is awaiting a report back from Laos. Previous studies carried out by the authorities have not yet established whether or not the project could have a negative impact, UNESCO said in an email. The issue is to be discussed by UNESCO in July during its meetings in New Delhi, but in the meantime, the construction continues. The site is a hive of activity, with backhoes tearing shovelfuls of deep red soil from the hills along the river, which are, there, which are then dumped along with loads of stone into the Miyakong to form a foundation. The dam site is within view of the Pakao Caves, homes to hundreds of Buddha statues, and a popular side trip for tourists visiting the Luang Prabang. Once completed, the project is expected to displace more than 5,000 families and impact 20 villages. Nestled among the mountains of northern Laos, Luang Prabang was the capital from the 14th to the 16th century before it was moved to Vietain. Its historic center has numerous Buddhist temples, a former royal palace, buildings from the French colonial era, and a mountaintop shrine built around what is said to be Buddha's footprint. Several picturesque waterfalls are within a short drive from the city. A bustling night market boasts stalls selling traditional Lao handcrafts made from whiskey as well as some trinkets made from the fragments of some of the millions American bombs dropped on the country during the Vietnam conflict in a campaign to try to disrupt communist supply lines. At a vibrant morning market, vendors sell brightly colored peppers, spices, fish, and more exotic foods. Many visitors arrive on small river cruise boats or by train on the new high-speed rail system built with funding from China as part of its Belt and Road project, which connects Vietain with the Chinese city of Kunming. It was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1995 for its unique, remarkably well-preserved townscape combined with its natural spaces located in the heart of the city as and along the riverbanks and wetlands. And there's a picture along with this article, and it is captioned, Laotian classic dancers perform for tourists January 28th in the Luang Prabang, Laos. With its mix of historical Laotian and French colonial architecture at the confluence of the Mekong and Na Kham rivers, Luang Prabang is the crown jewel of Laos, and it draws tourists from all over the world. And there's four girls dancing in this photo in tradi traditional Laos wear. 
I'm also going to go ahead and apologize for any mispronunciation in that last article. I think I'm going to go study up on some Laos culture after this. Maybe get some reading in. Next, we're going to move on to some short articles in the digest section on the national and world page. Um, AI-generated voices outlawed in robocalls. New York, the Federal Communications Commission, outlawed robocalls that contained voices generated by artificial intelligence Thursday, sending a clear message that exploiting the technology to scam people and mislead voters won't be tolerated. The unanimous ruling targets robocalls made with AI voice cloning tools under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, a 1991 law restricting junk calls that can use artificial and pre-recorded voice messages. It came as New Hampshire authorities probe AI-generated robocalls that mimic President Joe Biden's voice to discourage people from voting in the state's primary last month. Effective immediately, the regulation empowers the FCC to find companies that use AI voices in their calls or block the services providers that carry them. It also opens the door for call recipients to file lawsuits and give state attorneys general a new crackdown mechanism, the FCC said. That's the end of that short article. Moving on to this next one. Um, Judge denies Navarro's bid to stay out of prison. A federal judge denied Trump White House official Peter Navarro's bid Thursday to remain out of prison while he appeals his contempt of Congress conviction for refusing to cooperate with an investigation into the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. Navarro was sentenced last month to four months behind bars after he was found guilty of defying a House January 6th committee subpoena for documents and a deposition. The former White House trade advisor under President Donald Trump asked to be free while he fights the conviction and sentence. U.S. District Judge Amit Mahada said Navarro must report to serve his sentence when ordered unless Washington's federal appeals court steps in to block Mata's order. The judge said Navarro offered no proof to back his claims and hadn't shown any issues he will raise on appeal are substantial question of law. We are now reaching the midpoint for this listening. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 9th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Sarah Fay from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243-6833. I'll repeat that number one more time. 515-243-6833. We're going to be moving on now. Um, there are no obituaries today, so we're going to just move straight on into the sports section for today. We're going to be starting off with a rare one today. We're going to be starting off with some golf today. Thigala takes early lead in Scottsdale from the Associated Press. Scottsdale, Arizona. Sothis Thigala spent time with his parents in the player's dining room and grabbed a bite to eat during what ended up being a long weather delay. With no room to sit in the clubhouse at TPC Scottsdale, Thigala went out to his car to get warm, listen to music, and play chess on his phone. The break did nothing to slow him down. Figala returned to birdie his first hole following the delay, shooting a 6-under-65 to take the early lead in the unfinished first round of the Phoenix Open on Thursday. The weather was 
It was not good, but those last four holes were great. So I think there might be some good scores Friday with the wave that just teed off. Tigala said, It's going to be cold, but hopefully no rain or wind. We'll see. I played great, and that's all I can do, really. Five days after weather shortened the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am to 54 holes, storms followed the PGA Tour to the desert. A chilly morning gave way to wind and heavy rain that left pools of water on the greens of TPC Scottsdale. The stadium course was deemed unplayable around noon, leading to the delay of three and a half hours. About half the field was able to finish following the delay, leaving the rest to return Friday morning to resume their first rounds. The gala was returned to sink a eight-foot birdie putt on the par four sixth hole and closed with two pars. His closest pursuer was Andra Novak, who was five under through nine holes. And just another short little golf piece. Live Golf. Varner, Casey share early lead in Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Harold Varner III made an impressive turnaround in one week, going from last place in the Live Golf season opener to 7 under 35 on Thursday to share the first round lead with Paul Casey. Live Golf Las Vegas is being held the same week as the Super Bowl and drew a reasonable turnout at the Las Vegas Country Club, despite temperatures that barely cracked 50 degrees when the shotgun start began. Varner opened with two straight birdies and closed with two birdies on his last three holes. He began the season last week at the Mexican resort of Mayacoba and finished last with the 54-man lead, 26 shots out of the league. Varner said that he got some work with Butch Harmon, that the esteemed swing coach who lives in Las Vegas and doesn't travel much. Key to his round was not having to take penalty drops when he hit a few wayward tee shots. Asked what he thought would be a winning score, Varner said jokingly, the biggest thing for me was not finishing last. I was kind of tickled of because, first of all, it's embarrassing. Second of all, I think I'm better than that, so prove it, Varner said. That's good for me, and it's a good spot to be. That was the end of that article. I'm going to be honest, I don't really know a ton about golf, but it sounds a little interesting. We're going to move on to a piece about the um, NFL This NFL piece is titled, Jackson Wins Second AP NFL MVP Award. It is written by the Associated Press. Las Vegas. Lamar Jackson was near unanimous choice for his second AP NFL Most Valuable Player Award announced at the NFL Honors on Thursday night. Baltimore's All-Pro quarterback received 49 of of 50 first-place votes from a nationwide panel of voters that includes media members who regularly cover the NFL, former players, and coaches. Jackson led the Ravens to the NFL's best record in the regular season, but they lost to the Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. The 27-year-old Jackson is the fourth player to win his second MVP before turning 28, joining Patrick Mahomes, 27, Brett Favre, 27, and Jim Brown, 22. San Francisco 49ers running back Christian McCurvey ran away with the AP Offensive Player of the Year award. Cleveland Browns edge rusher Miles Garrett beat out T.J. Watt for AP Defensive Player of the Year. Houston Texans quarterback C.J. Stroud won AP Offensive Rookie of the Year award in a landslide. Defensive end Will Anderson, Stroud's teammate, won the AP Defensive Rookie of the Year award, outgaining both Jalen Carter and Kobe Turner by two first-place votes. The Browns took home four awards. Quarterback Joe Flacco came 
who came off the couch to lead the Clevelands to the playoffs, won AP Comeback Player of the Year. Kevin Stefanski edged Houston coach Demaco Ryans for AP Coach of the Year honors by one first-place vote. Defensive coordinator Jim Schwartz won AP Assistant Coach of the Year award after guiding the league's number one ranked unit. Buffalo Bills quarterback Josh Allen got the other first-place vote and finished fifth overall in the voting. Dallas quarterback Dak Prescott was second with 152 points. McCaffrey came in third with 147 points, and teammate Brock Purdy was fourth with 97. Pittsburgh Steelers defensive lineman Cam Howard was named Walter Payton Man of the Year. This was the sixth time the Steelers nominated Hayward for the award. Hayward created the Hayward House Foundation that supports several initiatives in the Pittsburgh area. The foundation also honors his father, Craig Ironhead Hayward, a fullback who played 11 seasons in the NFL. He died in 2006 at 39 of brain cancer. Hall of Fame. Las Vegas. First-time candidate Julius Peppers headlines the 2024 Pro Football Hall of Fame class that has a distinctive defensive feel. The star defensive end was joined by another elite pass rusher in Dwight Rennie and do-everything linebacker Patrick Wills in the modern era category announced Thursday night. Prolific receiver Andre Johnson and dynamic returner Devin Hester also got voted into the hall from the group of 15 finalists. Two more defensive players got in the senior category with linebacker Randy Gratis Har and a defensive tackle Stevie McMichael getting the necessary 80% support. Um, associated with this article, there is a photo of Cleveland Browns defensive ends Miles Garrett sacking Cincinnati Bagels quarterback Joe Burrow during the game on September 10th in Cleveland. And then there's also a photo of uh, Lamar Jackson giving a speech after winning an award. The caption is, the Baltimore Ravens Lamar Jackson speaks after winning the AP Most Valuable Player Award during the NFL honors on Thursday in Las Vegas. Continuing on, there is an article about college basketball, men's top 25 roundup. It's titled Arizona Outlasts Utah and Triple OT. It's by the Associated Press. Salt Lake City. Pele Larson had 27 points and eight assists to lead number eight Arizona to a 105 over 99 victory over Utah in triple overtime Thursday night. Caleb Love added 19 points and 10 rebounds to help the Wildcats um, earn their third road win in the conference play. Keisha Johnson chipped in with 17 points, and Kylan Boswell added 16. Umar Balo grabbed 16 rebounds to go with 10 points. Brayden Carlson led Utah with 27 points and 15 rebounds. Kaba Kiata had 18 points. Gabe Madison had added 17. Devinson Smith finished with 14 pound points, 11 rebounds, and 10 assists for the Utes. Utah could not overcome a 10 of 21 performance from the free throw line after rallying from a double digit deficit. Arizona was out rebounded 57 to 53, but outscored Utah 52 to 48 in the paint. 
Arizona never trailed through the final two overtime periods, but the Wildcats did not pull away for good until Ballo threw down a dunk to ignite a 9-0 run that put the Wildcats up 102-93 with 40 seconds left. Trailing by 16 early in the second half, Utah erased the deficit behind hot shooting from Madison and Carlson. The duo combined for 15 baskets and 38 points after halftime. After Carlson gave Utah the lead on a layup with 18, 1 minute and 18 seconds left um, in the first overtime, Larson tied it again on a jumper in the final minute to force another extra session. Larson missed a pair of potential go-ahead free throws with 52 seconds left in this extra session to open the door for a third overtime. Um, there's a photo of Arizona's Peely Larson who is hugging Keisha Johnson after the team's triple overtime win over Utah on Thursday in Salt Lake City. Continuing on with basketball, we're going to go move to the NBA. This article is titled, Donick Scores 39, Leads Mavs Over Shorthanded Knicks. It's written by the Associated Press. New York. Luka Donick had 39 points, 11 assists, and 8 rebounds to lead the Dallas Mavericks to an 122-108 win Thursday over the New York Knicks, who had just had 7 players in the second half because of injuries and trades. Former Knicks guard Tim Hardaway Jr. added 19 points, and Derek Jones Jr. had 18 for the Mavericks, who won their third straight game. Kyle Irving finished with 16 points. Donnerick scored 27 points in the second half, and his prettiest pass came early, a behind-the-back bullet that went 20 feet to Dwight Howell under the basket. Dante DiVincio scored 36 points for the Knicks, who had just lost two of three following a nine-game winning streak. Josh Hart had a season-high 23 points that added 12 assists and 10 rebounds. Warriors 131, Pacers 109. Stephen Curry made his first three, his first seven three-pointers and scored 29 of his 42 points in the first half, helping Golden State beat host Indiana. Curry had a season-high 11 threes. Pascal Seacam scored 16 points for the Pacers. Timberwolves 129, Bucks 105. Anthony Edwards had 26 points and nine assists, and Minnesota shot 21 of 41 from the three-point range to trounce host Milwaukee, which got 27 points from A.J. Green. Knicks takes big swing at trade deadline. Bojan Borgdavak left Detroit to join a now even more formidable contender in New York. Gordon Hayward is leaving Charlotte for one of the the league's best surprise stories this season in Oklahoma City. Doug McDormitt was once traded to Indi- by Indiana to San Antonio, and now the Spurs have traded him back to the Pacers. None of those shooters were making playoff plans when Thursday started. Trade deadline day in the NBA gave them plenty of other players and an entirely new, an entirely new outlook, plus may have even reshaped the start of the playoffs push as well. The Knicks made some big moves with eyes on contending and Eastern Conference. Philadelphia added a sharpshooter in Buddy Hyde with hopes that it can get back on track. If it, if reigning MVP Joel Amid returns from injury while Phoenix and Dallas added front court death, the Suns landed Royce O'Neal from Brooklyn and the Mavericks are bringing in PJ Washington from Charlotte. Kelly 
Olnick is heading back to his native Canada after getting acquired by Toronto in a deal with Utah. Milwaukee made a couple of notable moves, landing Patrick Beverly from the 76ers and sending Robin Lopez to Sacramento. Lots of people get got better. That's what's fun for the competition, Ahmed wrote on social media. Moving on, we're going to be switching it up with some hockey. We're going to the NHL. This article is called Surging Bruins Blank Canucks. It's by the, a- the Associated Press. Boston, Brad... March and Dayton Hain scored shorthanded in the first period, and the Boston Bruins beat the Vancouver Canucks 4-0 on Thursday in a matchup of the two, of the NHL's top two teams. Linus Olmark stopped 17 shots for his first shutout of the season. Morgan Geek and Pavel Zaka also scored, and Charlie Coyle set up both shorthanded goals. It was the eighth victory in 10 games for Boston, which tied Vancouver atop the league standing with 73 points. There's a couple scores here I'm going to read out. Hurricanes 5, Avalanche 2, Panthers 4, Capitals 2, Flyers 4, Jets 1, Flames 5, Devils 3, Islanders 6, Lightning 2, Golden Knights 3, Coyotes 2. We're going to continue on to the entertainment section now. Yay! This is kind of a fun one. Today's in history. Today's highlight. On February 9th, 1964, the Beatles made their first live American television appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, broadcast from New York on CBS. The quartet played six songs, including Love Me Do, I Want to Hold Your Hand, to a crowd of screaming teenagers in person and more than 70 million viewers across the country. On this date in 1925, the House of Representatives elected John Quincy Adams president after no candidate received a majority of electoral votes. In 1942, the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff held its first formal meeting to coordinate military strategy during World War II. In 1943, the World War II Battle of Gundenkala and the Southwest Pacific ended with an Allied victory over Japanese forces. In 1950, in a speech in Wheeling, West Virginia, Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin charged that the state's department was riddled with communists. In 1962, an agreement was signed to make Jamaica an independent nation with the British Commonwealth later in that year. In 1963, the Boeing 727 went on its first ever flight as it took off from Renton, Washington. In 1971, a magnitude 6.6 earthquake in California's San Fernando Valley claimed 65 lives. In 1984, Soviet leader Yuri V. Andropov, 69, died 15 months after succeeding Lenoid Brevent. He was followed by Konstantin U. Chernako, who would only be in power for 13 months. In 1986, Halley's Comet visited the solar system for the first time since 1910. Its next return will be in 2061. In 2002, Britain's uh, Princess Margaret, sister of Queen Elizabeth, died in London at age 71. In 2009, New York Yankees third baseman Alex Rodriguez admitted to taking performance-enhancing drugs, telling ESPN he'd used banned substances while he'd been with the Texas Rangers for three years. In 2018, the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics in South Korea, North and South Korea athletes entered the Olympic Stadium together, waving flags showing a unified Korea in the first joint Olympic march in more than a decade. 
In 2020, Parasite from South Korea won the Best Picture Oscar, becoming the first foreign language film to take home the biggest horror film. And that was written by the Associated Press. I really love Today's in History. I think they're, like, very interesting. And I'll find another entertainment article for us to read. The next thing we're going to be reading is a movie review called Food and Romance. French film The Taste of Things serves up a delectable blend. Kate Walsh, Tribune News Service. It starts humbly, a gnarled turnip emerging from the soil in its early morning light. Carrots and lettuce is collected and assembled alongside fish and poultry and cream in large country kitchen. These plants and animals pulled from the earth, ready to be transformed with the precise applications of fat and heat. Thus begins Tran and Hong's The Taste of Things, which opens with a spectacular sequence of cooking performed by Juliette Binoche, portraying a cook named Eugene. But she's much more than a cook. She's the collaborator and companion of Dodin Buffon, a famed fictional gourmapand in 1885 France called the Napoleon of the Culinary Arts. Though he gets the hefty moniker, Eugene is his muse, his sounding board, and his inspiration. Eugene cooks with a small smile and the calm and confident movements of a battlefield medic, wrestling flesh and flour into fine food. Cinematographer jo- Jonathan Rickenbog's camera follows her journey around the kitchen in long takes, peering into pots and bowls, capturing her bold movements and the instruction to give assignment to Violet. Dodin jumps in as a sous chef, taking the time to teach a young girl, Pauline, a potential apprentice with a perfect palate. Though Eugene moves with grace, Hung does not shoot her as if she's a dancer, but rather like a doctor. She salutes, sears, strains, blanches, whips, whisks, churns, boils, and bakes everything in sight. With skill and ease, she delivers a feast of rustic yet complex culinary delights to Dodin and his compatriots. Consome that makes the men hum in rev- reverence. A show-stopping volavent, which is a pastry stuffed with creamy, savory stew, tombent poached in milk, roasted veal loin with braised cabbages, and the miracle of scientific reaction, a baked Alaska. Dodin and his friends can barely contain their moans of pleasure as they sample each de- delicate dish and the sensuality with which Hung presents the experience is utterly breathtaking. You'll want to cheer at each sauce. Eugene is a technician, a pragmatist, while Dodin is the romantic, a pleasure-seeking Hinduist with a poet's mind and dedicated patron of her arts, including even the simplest of omelets. He proposes to her regularly, but all she will concede to is a late-night knock at her bedroom door, but theirs is a beautiful partnership cemented in love and intellectual corporal and emotional pleasures of food. The Taste of Things is an adaptation of sorts of Marcel Roof's 1924 novel, The Passionate Epucor, fleshing out the relationship between the gastron and his cook. French-Vietnamese filmmaker Hung has mentioned that the film is also in part inspired by his own marriage, his wife. Tran Nguyen Khen starred in his first four films and the, is the costume designer in The Taste of Things. But food is just a vessel for the love story and the taste of things. One we don't see often enough of a sweet, a egalitarian love built on respect and companionship savored sweetly in the autumn of life. Ultimately, Eugene poses to Dodin 
a very important question. Am I your cook or am I your wife? He answers correctly, but if you want to know the right answer, you'll have to take in the sensual charm of the taste of things. There's actually a photo. It's a still from the movie. Um, it's three girls and the man. I'm not going to try and pronounce the caption. It's just saying who the actors are, but they all have French names and I don't speak French. So that's just really bad. Um, and I'm going to find one more article for us to read and then we might be out of time. This last article I'm going to read is from My Pet World. It's called Managing a Noise Sensitive Dog by Kathy M. Rosenthal. It's a writer one where they write into the editor. Dear Kathy, I have a beautiful three-year-old white Havanese named Penny. This past 4th of July, she became spooked by fireworks and has an extremely frightened dog ever since. At the slightest noise, she scurries under the bed and remains there for several hours. It can be as simple as my son dropping the soap from the shower or a loud noise on the TV. I'm uncertain how to approach this behavior. We all love Penny dearly. However, there's no life for her. We want our precious dog back. How can I treat her and return her behavior to six months ago? From Fran in Oster Bay, New York. Dear Fran, Penny is exhibiting behaviors consistent with being a noise-sensitive dog. Some dogs are noise-sensitive from birth. Others have traumatic experience that set the stage for this anxiety and behavioral change. There are many things that can frighten dogs, but fireworks are probably the number one thing causing them stress. There are things you can do to help Penny overcome this behavior. These suggestions are not foolproof and can take time to accomplish. It also may take a combination of things and not just one thing to work. So don't just try one of the following suggestions on its own. Combine things until you find the right combination that reduces her fear and anxiety. I recommend getting a pheromone collar to reduce some of her anxiety and jumpiness when it comes to general noises around the house. Start her on over-the-counter calming chews available online or at a pet store. Get her an anxiety wrap or thunder shirt to wear as much as possible, as the snugness of these products may make her feel safer and like less, less likely to startle. After laying this groundwork to create a more calming environment, spend time counter-conditioning her by exposing her to low-level noise that, that you know she won't react to and rewarding her for being calm. Continue increasing the volume of this sound, slowly over time, and rewarding her for each baby step she takes toward remaining uh, calm when she hears certain noises. This will take time to be patient with her as you know, as you teach her that there's nothing to be afraid of. Dear Kathy, my four-year-old dog Cody, an English lab, who was rehomed at one-year-old by a couple who brought him from a show dog breeder. He's a great dog except for stopping and lying down for any person he sees or hears during our walks. He seems to think that they are coming to him. If someone is walking behind us, he lies down in the road and waits for them. I try to pull his 85-pound body up, but there's no luck. He just slides on the pavement. I know he loves and befriends everyone, but this is embarrassing and time-consuming. Do you have any thoughts? From Donna from Roanoke, Virginia. Dear Donna, it can be challenging to untrain him to sit or lie down when someone approaches, but you can add another step to training. Train him to follow you immediately after this behavior. To do this, ask him to sit or lie down, and when he does, say his reward or use a clicker to, remark, to mark the behavior and give him a treat. Then take the treat and slowly put it near his nose and slowly draw it away from him while you ask him to follow as you turn and walk away. Start the training in the house, then in your yard, and then during your walks. Once he learns that follow means following you, you should be able to tell him to follow when you be he begins to sit or lay down. 
as he should follow you instead of saying put. There's a photo associated with this article, and it's a dog wearing headphones. Um, I don't know what type of dog it is, but it's a dog. It's a brown dog. And the caption is, some dogs are noise sensitive from birth. Others have traumatic experience that set the stage for anxiety and behavior change, writes Kathy M. Rosenthal. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. This has been my first time reading for Iris. This is going to bring us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 9th. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. I'm Sarah Fay from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Informational Service for the Blind. Once again, thank you so much. People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active young and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. 
Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.